A Uni Air flight is landing at Hualien Airport when an explosion is heard. What caused the explosion that trashed this plane? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And it's been a while. Oh my gosh. Been a minute. Feels like it's been forever. I had my first time flying standby. That was... Garbage. It wasn't. It was half and half. It was 50% of the best experience and 50% of the worst. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk about that more in the post episode, but it's the reason we haven't recorded in a while because that was on a Sunday and we didn't make it home until like 2 a.m. Yep, that was fun. So no, we did not record that day. We are recording this on a Saturday. Yep. And yep. the episode for next week will be recorded tomorrow. So that's a whole thing. No, the episode for two weeks from now. Well, the episode for next week from the listening of this one. Oh. Recorded tomorrow. Yes. So we have some new patrons. Thanks to our new patrons, Chris and Charles. Thank you. Thank you. Two very average names. Hopefully you're not average <laughs> people. I think we have three Chris's now. Yep. Woohoo. Bienvenidos. Bienvenidos. Send in listener stories. No guarantee on when those will come out. Yeah. We did get another one today. Mm-hmm. From, you guessed it, David. David. I mean, at this point, we can't really say, you guessed it. Yeah. Because we have like three or four. He's the original, you guessed it. He is the original, you guessed it. <laughs> we'll have to record the next episode of that event. I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know when that's going to happen. <laughs> it's ready to be recorded. We just actually have to record it. Other than that, check out the Patreon stuff on the website. Mm-hmm. And merch stuff. I think that's it for housekeeping. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Uni Air Flight 873. Thanks to the original patron, Chris. Thank you. Whose voice you may have heard recently, actually. Yeah, some of yes. you probably saw I, I f***ed up, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually should have changed that date because I just did it for the future and then I forgot about it. Right. So there is a bonus episode that should be live now, by the time you're listening to this. Yes. For a while now, by the time you listen to this. So you should go check it out. It was a really cool episode to record. That was actually a really amazing story, fun story, and quite the ride. And quite the episode. It's very different. So. So that young Australian fellow is who recommended this flight. Yes. So thanks, Chris. This accident occurred on August 24th of 1999. This was a McDonnell Douglas MD-90 with the tail number Bravo-17912, which means it's from China, because that is a Chinese tail number. This is a flight from Taipei to Hualien in Taiwan. Hualien? Hualien? I don't know. Could be Hualien. Looks like Hualien. It's like 20 minutes. Yeah, this is a very short flight, because both are in Taiwan, and it's scheduled for 30 minutes with an average flight time of 20. Got it. Very short, especially when you're flying an MD-90, which is a full-size jet. Fun stuff. We haven't talked about an MD-90 in a while, but in case you needed a refresher, this is a T-tail with two engines mounted at the rear on the tail on either side. It's quite the long fuselage. It's a two-by-three seater. It's comparable in size to a 737. That's about it. The captain for this flight, I don't have any names. He was 41 years old. At the time, he had 6,532 hours total, of which 1,205 hours were on the type, on the MD-90. Okay. The first officer was 35 years old at the time. He had 5,167 hours total, of which 96 were on the MD-90. Brand new to the MD-90. He was brand new to the MD-90. Out of his 5,167 hours, 
4,500 of those were on the 747. Wow. <laughs> this will be relevant later. This is quite the difference in aircraft. This will be relevant later. <laughs> Foreshadowing. In Taipei, 90 passengers and six crew boarded the flight. The flight took off from Songshan Airport in Taipei at 12.16 p.m. local time. The flight climbed to its cruising altitude of just 10,000 feet. It's a 20-minute flight. <laughs> Which it reached in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, woo! Fourth flying real high. Already done. Yeah. Like flying at 10,000 feet. The only reason we don't have jets flying at 10,000 feet here is because we have so much more VFR traffic here. Yes. That would interfere. Yes. <laughs> I've flown... It's also not as efficient. Up to about maybe a little over 10,000 with Brendan. With Brendan? Yeah. I have been up to 14.3 with my dad. Did you go over the mountains? We did it once as an experiment. There are a lot of things that come with legalities when it comes to having oxygen on board. I won't get into all that right now. We weren't up there for very long. We did this in a Cherokee 140. Anybody we who did it knows, in putt-putt. We did this in putt-putt. For anybody who knows what that really means, that's incredible. We literally reached probably the service ceiling of that airplane. <laughs> <laughs> and I am not even a little bit kidding. It was wintertime, so the performance was pretty good. It was my dad and I. We went up and flew all the like we circled up. To the peak, like just above the peak of Pike's Peak, kind of circled around, stared at it, and went right back down. <laughs> we were not up there, but for maybe a minute or two. There's a reason your dad sold putt-putt. Yes. <laughs> maybe it's because the plane's called putt-putt. Yeah, it's, it's super, super <laughs> underpowered. There were instructors who refused to fly that airplane here because they were so scared of how little that airplane could perform at this altitude. Anyways, all that tangent aside, 10,000 feet. That's what they were flying this Jet at. All was normal and the flight time was scheduled for 30 minutes, but the route had a mean flight time of 20 minutes, which is about what they did today. Nine minutes into the flight, the flight contacted Hualien Approach Station, who constructed the flight to make a 160 degree turn before descending to 6,000 feet. So they were not at 10,000 feet for very long. <laughs> they also weren't in the air for very long before they were already talking to their approach. 12.30 p.m. and 50 seconds, the flight crew advised the air traffic controller that they had the airport in sight. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight for a visual approach and cleared them for landing before ending radar services entirely. They were like, cool, VFR. You, you got this. This is the middle of the day, clear weather. There's not really any traffic to deal with. There's the airport. Have fun. All you. They didn't have any kind of instrument approach for this. They weren't trying to do anything special. The flight crew configured the aircraft for landing as they approached runway 21 at Hualien Airport. 12.36 p.m. The aircraft touched down a little firmly on runway 21. The reverse thrust spoilers and brakes were applied to slow the airplane, as they were still rolling at a relatively high rate of speed. An explosion was heard throughout the cabin and felt throughout the cabin, suddenly. Yeah, as they were rolling out. That's nice. You know, they've already touched down. Yep. The captain immediately applied full brakes to bring the aircraft to a stop on the runway. The captain tried to call Mayday over the radio, but their electrical systems had failed about that moment. Oh, well. Once the aircraft came to a stop, the engines were shut down, but the cabin was quickly filling with smoke. Yeah, I would GTFO out yep. there, my friends. <laughs> I'm showing Miranda's oh, pictures. Oh, no! Yep. And with the backup electrical system, the captain ordered everyone to evacuate the airplane immediately, which GTFO. they were already doing. <laughs> which they were already doing. This airplane has a set of air stairs at the rear. It also has a door on the left side at the rear. So okay. they were able to use both of those. Nice. It also has overwing exits on both sides. We'll talk about this, but one of them was not used. And then the two forward exits, which were used. The only ones that have slides are the front two 
and then the one that's on the left in the back. Yeah. But yep. the I don't know if the tail one does. The one where you like push out the butt of the airplane. No, because that's not on this airplane. This one literally has a set of air stairs. Oh, okay. So the air stairs just come down and they went out the air stairs. Anybody that could. Thankfully, this airplane had a lot of exits. Well, it's kind of necessary. Yes. It had for stuff like this. Eight exits. Yes, eight exits. Correct. Good number. GTFO. Yep. And everyone did. I would hope so. Well, we'll talk about it. Someone took their stuff off the airplane, didn't they? They didn't say anything about that, actually. <laughs> I bet someone did. That's not the stupid thing. No, I didn't think it would be, but we'll it, get no, there. there's always well, one person. We already there. prefaced to Miranda. The cause of this is stupid, like a new brand of stupid. We'll get there. Which is interesting because it's also an explosion, so... It's a new brand of stupid. <laughs> we'll get there. I'm sure this one was recommended with you in mind. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> the doors were open and the cabin crew began assisting people in evacuating. The captain was able to call the tower for help at that time. They couldn't see that there was just an airplane on fire? Sure they did. I think I think the tower radioed them like, are you okay? I read something about it. Pretty much. They didn't really talk much about this in the report, but there was a quick conversation. The fire squads from both the airport, which had its own, and then the Air Force wing that was based at the airport mm-hmm. also this had is, their own. This is a joint base. Yep. So it's civilian and military. Yep. So they were scrambled from both sides of the airport as large plumes of black smoke spewed from the top of the aircraft. There are pictures. Go look at them. It's dramatic. It is dramatic. They arrived some eight minutes after the explosion, which is a really long time. Really, really long time. The average response time for an aircraft in distress on a runway, should something happen at most airports on Earth, is about three minutes. Yeah, I was going to say a couple minutes. Usually it's less. It can be even less, yes. A lot of times they can get there in under a minute. So The fact that they didn't get there till eight minutes later? Eight minutes later. That's not great. Ambulances didn't arrive for 30 minutes. Oh, that's not great. Did they have the stupid thing that happens where they're like, we can't get onto airport ground? That's probably part of it. They didn't really (laughs) talk too much about this other than the fact that- No, 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 no. They did. I just didn't read it. Well, it's not in the findings. It's not in the recommendations. It's in section two. Okay. Well, the whole thing was- Yes, I'm sure that was part of it, but basically the whole area around the airport, as well as the airport itself, did not have properly staffed or equipped medical services, period. Which they talked about more than they talked about the cause, actually. Yes. Well, because that's a problem. It's a pretty big It's a huge problem. Because people who survived the accident could potentially lose their lives in that time. It's interesting you say that. We'll get there. Because they didn't get there on time. As people evacuated and rescuers arrived, they had a difficult time trying to help as the airplane was heavily in flames in the cabin. The fire wasn't extinguished until 1.45 p.m., a full hour and nine minutes after the explosion. Yeah, that's not good. The top of the fuselage had been burned through completely, with several large holes burned above much of the passenger cabin. Nice. Much of the passenger cabin itself was destroyed by the fire. Basically the whole thing. And rescuers had a very difficult time trying to determine if there were any people left in the cabin or if there were any bodies. Because everything was so burned, charred, mangled inside the cabin. They had a hard time going through it. Fortunately, it was determined that all of the passengers and crew, after some time they determined this, all of the passengers and crew had been evacuated from the airplane. However, this was still not without its casualties. 62 passengers and all six crew did manage to evacuate without any injury at all. So the majority of people, just fine. 
14 passengers had minor injuries, probably from the evacuation. They were all rushing to the exits very quickly. Yeah. Initially, it was reported that another 14 passengers had serious injuries and were taken to local hospitals. But one of those 14 passengers, which was struck by fragments from the moment of the explosion, later perished from their injuries. So that passenger died on day 47. Right. It was a lot longer later, which is why in the count, they are counted as one in fatalities. But in reading the report, they still count 14 serious injuries. I am going to read this part from the report verbatim just because it is relevant. The deceased passenger had been seated in 7B. Death was found to have been was caused by the second and third degree burns sustained on over 45% of the passenger's body, which resulted in poisonous blood, eventually cardiopulmonary failure. The passenger died on day 47 after the accident. The female passenger seated in 8H suffered a facial fracture, a head injury, and a hemorrhage in her skull. Her 26-week-old fetus she was carrying at the time of the accident died. I can see why you asked me about the wide body thing. Because the seats are numbered weird. <laughs> what the heck is H? <laughs> what the heck is H? <laughs> this aircraft, Do you see why I had asked? This aircraft has five seats across. That's all it could fit. A, B, C, D, E. Well, I think it's A, B, C. D, E. Could be. Yeah, because something was found under seat 5C. Okay. That is very much foreshadowing. Yeah, okay. Maybe just um, and continue it. The passenger seated in 7C suffered second and third degree burns over 25% of his body, as well as injuries from smoke inhalation. 7A suffered second and third degree burns over 21.55% of his body. Very specific. Very specific. The other 11 passengers who suffered serious burns were in 6B, 6C, 7H, 7K, 8C, 8H, 8K, 9H, 9K, 10H, 10K. What? So does that tell you anything at all? Because... They're all in rows 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. On an aircraft with like 30 rows. The passenger seated in 11H was injured while evacuating on the slide. Known to happen. Yes, this happens. That is expected. The passenger seated in 17A suffered smoke inhalation burns. Ooh. As well as all other 10 passengers seated between rows 5 and 11, which is expected. Yeah, pretty much. So that's clearly something went on there. Something, yes, went on in that area. Is that all you got? That's pretty much all I got. Sorry, I hijacked it a little bit. Nope, that's okay. This investigation was performed by the Taiwanese Aviation Safety Council, which was brand new at the time. It had been established about a year prior due to a poor safety record for the entire country. Fair enough. I mean. And this was their first major investigation. The NTSB and the FAA joined the investigation a couple days in. I will get to that. Both black boxes were recovered. I mean, they're in the tail, and whatever happened happened at the front of the fuselage, so... In the interest of getting the airport back up and running, they began working on the debris that was on the runway. All of the items on the runway came from the plane itself, indicating that it did not strike anything on the runway. Right. Cool, cool. Good to know. This is not another Concorde. Yep. Next came witness interviews, crew and passengers alike. All of them reported a very similar story. The landing was a very hard landing. I'm actually surprised you didn't talk about that. I was kind of hoping you would talk about that. About which part? The hard, the hard landing. landing. I said it was a very firm landing. <laughs> I figured I'd leave you the pun because I knew you'd do it anyway. <laughs> I did. So now I'm kind of winging it for my script because I didn't have any of this. Did story. you want me to talk about? You go ahead. The whole thing with him? Yes. Okay. So 
The first officer was pilot flying. Okay. Which you might recall his experience was with 747s. And be it that he flies 747s primarily, and this is the MD-90 is very new to him. That means he's used to landing 10 stories up rather than landing three stories up. Okay. Which is an enormous difference from a visual perspective, from a handling perspective and all these things. So he was still getting used to the airplane. He didn't have a lot of time as actual pilot flying. And because of that, when he did set the airplane down, he came in too high, too fast, which the captain had pointed out along their approach. Too high, too fast. Yeah. He said you were coming in too high, too fast. Once they did land, they were on the ground. They had the hard landing because of the first officer. He descended to compensate for being too high. Yes, he descended to compensate for being too high because of the 747 thing. And the captain then took control, which is actually company procedure, by the way. But the captain specifically discussed with him, you... He said you descended too quickly. Yeah, he said you descended too quickly and hit the runway. But he didn't say it in a condescending manner. He was actually trying to be like, hey, just so you know, this is what you did wrong. Since you're new to this. This is what you did wrong. So question. Uh If they knew they were coming in too high, too fast, Mm -hmm. like obviously the captain realized he Mm -hmm. was too high, too fast. Mm -hmm. I realized that the first officer compensated by descending, but Mm -hmm. why didn't they just do a go around to redo it? Because... In reality, the landing was still not out of a normal landing. They still landed in the landing zone. They still had, even though it was a firm landing, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. It was probably similar to what we experienced in St. Louis. Yeah, pretty much. They definitely nothing, stuck it. Nothing crazy. To be honest, I mean, yeah, so they made a point of it being a hard landing, but the reality is it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. We'll they, get to why that was relevant later. In the Air Disasters episode, they even said, from a passenger and cabin crew perspective, it wouldn't have been strange. It just would have been, I mean, it would have been a hard landing, but it wouldn't have been anything that was like ridiculous. Ooh, ah, they were just, oh. It on its own was not worthy of our podcast. Right. So everyone reported the same thing. It was a hard landing. And right before the flight attendant went to make the announcement over the public announcement system, there was a very loud explosion inside the plane on the left side toward the front and a blast of hot air went through the cabin. There were no unusual sounds or smells indicating a preceding fire or anything of the nature. Upon reviewing the wreckage from the outside, it was pretty evident where the explosion took place as a panel of the fuselage above and to the left of the eighth row had burst open. It was folded outward. And there were flames spilling out from that. Okay. Some of the witness statements from the airplane rolling, because there was quite a few witnesses on the ground that were watching this airplane. Okay. Said that the hole that they initially saw was no larger than a human head. So they could distinctly tell where it was on the airplane when this initially happened. Oh, that the explosion? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, from, okay. from a witness statement. That okay. was what they could ascertain. Which, if you recall from Aloha Airlines Flight 243, is about 10 by 10 inches. Yep. Because it was a single panel that burst out. Yep. I'll get more to that in a second. Given the circumstances reported thus far, an adjacent criminal investigation began. Because everyone in the media is like, it was a bomb, it was a bomb, it was a bomb, it was a bomb, it was a bomb. Oh my god, chill. It's probably not a bomb. Hmm. (laughs) So you're telling me it's a bomb then? (laughs) No. No, I'm not. I'm not saying anything. This is when the NTSB and the FAA joined the investigation, including an explosives expert from the FAA. Now, if you are surprised that the FAA had an explosives expert before 9-11, you haven't been paying attention to your aviation history. Listen, Linda. (laughs) This isn't the first time that that's happened on an airplane. No. Not even close. No. But this one is quite unique. Remember when I said it's a special brand of stupid? Anyway, they began inside the cabin, which was very dangerous. 
Uh, because there's shards of everything sticking out of everywhere, and there's water everywhere from the firefighting effort, so you could just slip and impale yourself. Yep. That's the risk you take becoming yep. an investigator. That's pretty much true. It was evident from the inside that the explosion occurred around the area of the overhead compartment above row eight. Of course, at this point, everyone is thinking, it's a bomb. It's a bomb. It's in a the bomb. overhead compartment. But that's not what the evidence said. Nope. Is it a battery? No. The explosive expert was interviewed on air disasters and explained that bombs generate high temperature gases that burn holes in the surrounding areas, like little pinprick holes. And that is not what he found. Rather, the skin of the fuselage had ripped along the rivet line, indicating that the overhead compartment acted more like a pressure vessel that burst rather than containing an explosive device. This is a very nuanced find, but a very vital find. Okay. Hard to explain. I'm not an explosives expert. Nor do I really care to be. <laughs> hey, you're the pyro. Hey, hey, hey now. Just because I <laughs> just because He's I like wrong. I like campfires doesn't mean I like knowing what a bomb looks like versus anything else. Fair enough. This theory was supported by the CVR. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is going to sound strange, but the explosion did not sound like a bomb. Okay. How do we know? Well, we have CVRs from bombs. Yes, this is true. True. So a sound analysis was performed comparing the frequency spectrum of the explosion to bombs. Bombs have high frequency spikes within their frequency spectrum, and the explosion itself is relatively short in duration. Conversely, the CVR revealed a low frequency prolonged explosion, relatively, indicating that the source of the explosion most closely matched something gaseous. So now we're all lost again. Right. This is, sounds strange, right? Very strange. Uh, it gets stranger. Oh, good. Investigators went back to the wreckage to see if any of the items in the area surrounding row eight would have produced, I don't know, an explosion. Yeah. That's a boom boom? A boom boom. Again, remember, this is very dangerous. Yes. They clearly don't care. I care. I care. I care. Under seat 7C, they found the top of a plastic bottle and someone had the brilliant idea of smelling it. That's a horrible idea. I would not smell anything. Well, it's a good thing you did because it, it smelled like gasoline, like car gasoline, not jet fuel, car gasoline. Please tell me someone didn't put gasoline in a water bottle. Not quite. <laughs> I'm sorry. With the BS that happened this past year in the U.S. with people like putting gasoline in bags and my God, don't even go there. <laughs> I wouldn't even put it ridiculous. past people. I know, right? So investigators tested the residue on the bottle and confirmed it was indeed gasoline. Yay. And they compared the remains to locally available household goods and found that it was the remains of a commonly sold bleach bottle. The look on your face is about exactly right. <laughs> I don't understand. Why are you bringing bleach on a flight? It isn't bleach. It's gasoline. In a bleach bottle. What? Why? Your riddle me this is everybody else's riddle me this. Everyone else is sitting here like, uh, what? Why? Was it a bomb? Investigators pulled the tapes from the security screening in Taipei and found that the bleach bottles were not the only potentially dangerous item that this specific passenger had brought through security. A security officer pulled him aside when he tried to go through with camping fuel cans, insecticide with flammable propellant, and two bleach bottles. Now, the air disasters episode says two bleach bottles. The report says one bottle of bleach and a similarly sized bottle of fabric softener. 
<laughs> okay. The f- I don't know. Liquids are not limited at this point in time. This is 1999. This is 1999. But. But that's. Flammable things that's are. That's freaking suspicious as hell. So Nick will get more into that later because I'm not. But the camping fuel and the insecticide were both confiscated as potentially flammable. Yes. But when the security officer asked what was in the bottles, the passenger confirmed that they were the manufactured thing that was supposed to be in them. So bleach and fabric softener or both bleach. I don't know. Depends on who you ask. So they were just lying? <laughs> put freaking gas. I, I am not commenting on what his intentions were. That is for Nick to cover later. But obviously they're bleach. They're bleach bottles. What else would they be, right? Against policy, the security officer did not open them to confirm and let them go through. They were supposed to smell them, which to me is also a little bit suspicious because there's certain chemicals you're not supposed to inhale. What if it inhale. was freaking sarin gas? Right. So that just seems like bad policy to me, but we'll get into this. The airport had so little equipment to handle chemical composition anything Yeah, that that was their policy was to smell liquids. So, investigators brought in this particular individual, and he said that there was no way that they contained gasoline. Why would he do that when his relative was going to take them on board? Wait. What? Yeah. This individual who had taken the bleach bottles through security had actually gone on a different flight than the accident flight, and his relative took the bag with the stuff onto the accident flight. Which... So he was like already suspicious enough to me. He was like, why would I give gasoline, something explosive to my relative who was going to fly on this? Well, you were also going to give stuff that was freaking flammable to him, too, that could easily explode under pressure. Why did you give him your bag to travel with? That's suspicious as hell. We'll get to that later. On a different flight. That sounds like you have a death wish for him. So we know what fueled the explosion. Gasoline. But gasoline, even vaporized gasoline if it had been leaking from the bottle, does not explode on its own. Yeah. That, what, how? It needs a spark. It does. Here's and where the other brand of stupid comes in. Oh, okay. Because I'm like, it's in an overhead compartment. Yeah. So. Yep. Okay. So investigators pulled the wire harness that runs over the overhead compartments and went through it, combing the area for any insulation that might have been missing or caused a spark. No dice. Also, it doesn't make sense because the evidence from the wreckage indicates that the Explosion originated from inside the overhead compartment, and the wire harness runs outside of the overhead compartment. So. Uh, Yes. Okay. This is not likely. Investigators then thought back to not that long before this to ValueJet Flight 592 with oxygen generators, which turn out get very hot. Yes. When activated. The little ones that your little mask is attached to should you need it. Yeah. If that pin gets pulled accidentally, hot. Hot. And hot equals fire. And fire equals big boom. Big boom. Lo and behold, every oxygen generator was intact. None of the pins so had been pressed. Good. They were all still I don't. stock. Okay. Which is amazing to me, considering they were also exposed to flames. The pins were not pulled. Nope. So we're running out of ideas at this point. So lab techs at this point are still coming through the 700 plus pieces of wreckage. First they still all, had the airplane in the hangar. First of all, RIP to these poor lab techs. They found which is where the story gets even stupider than it was before. I still can't believe this happened, actually. When I was watching the Air Disasters episode in a crowded airport, you know, as I do, I almost screamed in frustration. They found a 12-volt motorcycle battery. So it was a battery! <laughs> but wait, so, okay. Did he say, what, what? the f- <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. 
this is not just a normal motorcycle battery. No, it was one where the poles were exposed after manufacture, and someone had connected wires to them as if trying to power something external. But the wires were just laying around free and loose, uncovered. Flopping about. If those two ends came into contact... They're gonna spark. <laughs> oh my god. What might have jostled them to come in contact and the spark? The heavy landing? You are right! <laughs> <laughs> but how the hell did they get a freaking 12-volt motorcycle battery with wires that are completely exposed onto the aircraft? Like, what? Yeah, that how? was an oversight. What? That was an oversight. Investigators say that somehow the x-ray machines did not pick up the motorcycle battery. How? How? They didn't How? Care. They didn't care. That's how. How? They didn't care. The battery was found under seat 5C. The battery was from a totally different bin from a totally different person. I don't know if it was a different bin. It they may- said in the Air Disasters episode it was two bins over. Oh, then well, how is it because it, the gasoline had yep. vaporized? It had vaporized. Because it was I leaking. I still don't understand blood. the gasoline thing either. But- yep. I don't... Okay. The f- <laughs> Do you see what I mean by a whole new brand of stupid? But it's the same thing of, like, is a perfect storm of things. Because if it was just the gasoline, it would have been fine. And if it was just the battery... I don't know about the battery. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't believe that they didn't catch that there was a f- battery with freaking cables attached to it. It's like, for those of you who don't understand how that works, if you've ever tried to jump a car mm-hmm. and you connect the cables to your battery, and as long as your battery has juice, you touch the cables together. And, and they spark. Zap. That's it. I don't. Okay. <laughs> two different people, two different things that just happen to go really poorly together. <laughs> so just to prove that these two items did cause the explosion, investigators worked with the Chongshan Institute of Science and Technology. They did not have... Okay. This overhead bin was special on this airplane. These two specific bins on either side of the aisle at this part of the plane where they were bigger than all of the other overhead bins. Okay. So investigators did not have 1,000 liter overhead bins at their disposal. Okay. Because those are weird. Okay. So they built a 1,000 liter wooden box just to simulate the pressure vessel-ness of the overhead compartment. Yep. And it worked. It exploded. What do you know? So then they tested an actual overhead bin of smaller size to see if the burn patterns were the same. Okay. And they were. So they made do with what they had, basically. Yeah. They couldn't test an exact replica, but it was enough to prove that this was possible. It was probable, if anything. They pretty well figured out that this is exactly what happened. And it went boom. Because, duh, this happened when you're carrying an open terminal battery and a bottle of gasoline. Now, one thing that the Air Disasters episode did not mention, and I'm not entirely sure how relevant it is, but whoever filled the bleach bottle with gasoline was aware that gasoline can leak through bottles, Okay, which is why they have very specific containers normally. That's why you're not supposed to put them in, like, plastic bags. Yeah, no, duh. (laughs) Or, like, water bottles. Yeah. So he had, he, they, made a silicone seal, like silicone that you get at... Yeah. Your average hardware store and sealed it inside. Okay. But it still leaked through because it's gasoline and yep. it's a solvent. Yes. Right. It went through the bottle. Itself. Like the plastic of the bottle. Yep. That it, that- or through the lid still. Yeah. Like, it's so hard to get a perfect seal on a generic plastic bottle. Yep. This is just... No one was surprised that it leaked through the bottle. Nobody. The problem that I have with this is that this is very clearly intentionally put in that bottle and carried. Why? 
Why? I, I don't under I don't understand. Do you want to get into that aspect now, or do you want to wait for the second half? I don't really care. We can go through it now if you would Okay, like. let's go into it. So that person, that passenger... S- the said person that had the gasoline. The original person who had the gasoline. Was a celebrity. Was a Taiwanese decathlete, Ku Chin Shui. Okay. Who was absent from the flight, of course. He had given the bottles of flammable liquid to his nephew to transport. I'm going to read this directly from the Wikipedia page because they sum this up relatively well. Okay. This, of course, caught the media's attention, so... Very quickly, he was in the spotlight about, why in the heck did you give him a bottle of gasoline to carry on an airplane? Yeah. And he immediately vehemently denied that he did. It's a little sus. No, clearly you did. Like, because there was gasoline in the damn bottle. My, like, whole, my whole thing. Why are you carrying all of these things from one part of Taiwan to another? That's so, not very far away. When interviewed, he said that he had the camping fuel and the insecticide for his cabin in Hualien. And you can't buy that there? Yeah, or gas? This or is bleach? the whole thing to me. Like, looking at it from a true crime nut perspective that I have, I'm like, he's trying to build a bomb. That's what it sounds like. But, and why did you give it to somebody else to carry on a flight you're not going on? Yeah, if you wanted it so badly for your cabin, why are you giving it to someone else? This is super suspicious. So, of course, pretty much right away, they wanted to press charges. The criminal investigation sought to press charges. This is straight from the Wikipedia page. An Aviation Safety Council report said that it was thought that the bottles were incorrectly sealed and gasoline fumes leaked, which later ignited when a motorbike battery in a nearby overhead luggage compartment was jostled, discharging an electric arc. Ku was initially sentenced to a 10-year prison term, Damn. which was shortened to seven and a half years upon appeal. The fifth retrial found him not guilty. After the judge said that although Ku had asked his nephew to carry a bottle of bleach in his luggage, the fragments that tested positive for gasoline were not limited to the fragments of the bottle. Of course they weren't. It leaked. <laughs> Duh! I twitch, I twitch, I twitch. So, this Jimmy is just ridiculous. Eventually, he got out of it. Like He got out of the charges. By saying, no, I don't know how gasoline got in that bottle. What? They couldn't prove it, which I think is stupid. He put silicone around the lid. And then he gave it to somebody else. I know. Which should be illegal. I'm pretty sure it is now. It is today. What I don't understand is the fact that... So you're talking about having these normal things that you buy at grocery stores mostly, right? Yes. There's many grocery stores. In every city. I hope so. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Unless we have, like, a starvation problem, right? Yeah. And he's a celebrity. Like, why? Yep. Like, because the other thing that pops into my head is, like, drugs. 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 Like, you're (laughs) transporting drugs. Drugs with a Z. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, because that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like criminal activity. It sounds like you're trying to smuggle something you don't want found that's not connected to you. I agree. Through someone else. I agree. And so did most people. And yet he got away with this. And not for the reason you would think, which is like, we just literally can't prove that you did this on purpose. And somebody died. And multiple people were scarred for life. Right. This is why this to me is a whole nother level of stupid, to be honest. It's not just the fact that gasoline was being carried, which was dumb, and that a battery was in there, which was dumb, but also the fact that he got away with this. Which is dumb. When it was clearly... Pretty intentional just from everything that was going on. Like, okay, you couldn't perfectly prove because there was no communication anywhere that said, hey, I'm going to give you this bag full of 
I don't know, questionable items. Drugs. <laughs> to carry on a separate flight. What? See, I don't know why they didn't think, like, that's weird. Like, why? Right. Why? And he, he never came clean about any of this either. He never came clean about, like, exactly why all those things were the way they were. He never came clean about why he gave the bag to his nephew in specific. He gave excuses, but he never came clean about, like, real reasons. Like, he was just like, no, I didn't know that that was gasoline. I don't know. He was just carrying the bag for me. What? No, you gave it to him. Why? <laughs> you were on a flight. A different one. Clearly, because you had to go through security. So why not take it with you past security? Duh. I just, ah. Uh... And the other things that he was carrying were aerosols, which don't do particularly well. Under pressure. Under pressure. And they took them from him at security. And he was like, yeah, yeah, okay, you can take those. Because they let him have his bottle of bleach and gasoline. Okay, that's, so we're going to okay. take a break. That's a thing. We're going to come back with some of the normal stuff, I assume? Yep. Yeah. Actually, all three normal things. Great. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, we're back. Let's go through the usual stuff. There is findings. There is probable cause. There are findings? There is. There I know findings. the report was in not great English, but that doesn't mean... I can purposefully do not great English because I speak it. <laughs> and also, English. That too. There you go. So, findings, probable cause, recommendation. There were 39 findings. I am not doing 39 findings, but I am doing actually quite a few of them. They found that this accident is not associated with the aircraft systems, pilots, maneuvers, aircraft maintenance, aviation control, or weather. They oh. cleared that all up in one single finding. Sorry, I forgot to mention all of that. Yeah, no, not important. <laughs> well, we kind of figured that out. They quickly determined that this was not the fault of any of that. Pretty much on arrival, when the engines were intact, the wings were intact, the landing gear was intact, the tail was intact, the cockpit and, was intact. And everyone literally said, hey guys, something went boom. That was pretty much it. They didn't even really question any of this stuff or look into it because they were like, <laughs> no, it didn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> nope. They found that the laboratory tests on evidence collected by the Criminal Police Bureau revealed bleaching liquid and softener bottles containing a flammable material, gasoline, were on board the aircraft. Yes. Yes, they were. They found that the motorcycle battery found at the explosion scene shows a metal conductor fragments on the polarity rod that is of the same material as the metal conductor found among the fragments on the runway. So in other words, the cables that were connected to the battery when... Things went boom. Yeah. The cables went out to the runway. The battery fell to the floor eventually, but they determined that part of the cable was still attached to the battery and it was the same as the cables down on the ground. So they figured all that out. Was They were arguing. I didn't go that far they into it. They didn't need to. They figured it out. It wasn't too complicated. Found that the analysis conducted by the Chungshan Institute of Science and Technology indicates that a short in the battery could have ignited the vapor. They tested that with the makeshift bin and then the bin itself. Mm-hmm. With an actual bin that was not the same size, but right. I mean, you know, same thing. But the same concept. Proved the same thing happened. They found that gasoline leaking from the bottle filled the bin and vaporized. The gas vapor ignited when the battery short-circuited. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. 
They found that the security inspection system available in the airport failed to detect illegal containers or identify the liquid they contain. The monoscale x-ray instrument depends on manual reading for materials of potential hazard. The security inspection system does not meet the physical requirements and additionally demands additional security inspectors and a heavy workload. So basically, they're supposed to be smelling every single liquid that goes through that thing. Which sounds weird. Really suspicious. So you'll notice now that a lot of security personnel have these little wipes that they go wipe on whatever they think is suspicious. Swipe. Sometimes the the thing that's suspicious is you. Yes. Fun fact. Swipe, swipe, swipe. Sometimes it's Miranda. (laughs) Miranda is just suspicious. (laughs) Just real sus. I've gotten swabbed before. That's why I say that. Me too. Me too. Chemical reactions can tell you that without you, I don't know, inhaling a potentially dangerous substance. Yes. But this is 1999 in an airport that was busy, but I don't know. Also, zipping a little bit ahead, but... It kind of makes sense to an extent, the liquid capacity limitations. This kind of justifies that. This is another reason that that exists now. Yes. But this is not the primary reason that that exists. No, but it supports that, though there are rumors that there is technology being developed that will make the 3.4 fluid ounce or 100 milliliter limit vanish. Vanish. That is a whole thing you can go and research, but it is in test and in use in a few places, and it is supposed to be rolled out worldwide eventually. And this is very much a thing. The TSA has already bought into it. So one day there will be machines that can detect if you have a bleach bottle full of gasoline. Yep. Just by looking at it, basically. Which, by the way, if you haven't figured out yet, you should not have a bleach bottle full of gasoline. (laughs) That's just a bad idea, period. (laughs) You really shouldn't have a bleach bottle at all. No. To be fair, because bleach is also flammable. bad. Why would you carry that on an airplane? I just don't get that, like any of those things. Also, wouldn't you be nervous about bleach, like, I don't know, getting on the clothes that you have in your duffel bag? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You would think, but clearly this guy wasn't, because he wasn't the one carrying the damn bleach bottle. If this was purely an accident, no matter, it just seems... Dumb. Wildly ridiculously dumb. It seems so suspicious. Ridiculously dumb. They found that some new recruits lack proper security inspection training and initial training on specific materials. There is also no annual training on physical testing of hazardous materials. Training records show only attendance and no review records, therefore preventing accurate assessment of trainees. Poor training by senior personnel results in incompetent inspectors. Yes, great, thank you. It's a roundabout way of saying all of the inspectors and their superiors were poorly trained. They didn't know how to deal with hazardous materials at these checkpoints. That was a whole thing. They found that the prohibited motorcycle battery went undetected by aviation police instruments and the bottled gasoline passed by the inspector. See, so the gasoline thing, I can kind of understand. He looked at the bottle. He was like, oh, it's bleach. It's bleach. But the The battery. battery, I can't get over the battery. They didn't stop and look at the battery. They legit just like weren't paying attention. They're just like, okay, bye. Did not care. Bye, Felicia. Yep. Go. Like, you got to actually look at the damn machine at least. Yep. They found that the injured passengers were seated between rows 5 and 11, therefore, that this was the sector where the explosion took place. So, yes, that's where the explosion took place, was in above row 8, to be specific. They found that following the explosion, the captain gave the order to evacuate right after applying the brakes and before turning off the engines. They were still rolling. Yeah, but when you have something that's, like, on fire? Yep. Get out. Get out. They found that the chief flight attendant manually opened the L1 sideway, or door, 
and then left the aircraft to assist the passengers alongside the aircraft. This was contrary to the standard procedures given in the flight attendant handbook. Okay, that listen. They're supposed to be the last people off. They are because they're supposed to help. I do think that one flight attendant should disembark first because getting people off those slides, particularly if they are elderly. Agreed. Makes sense. Here's how the procedure worked then and now. They are supposed to assign the first able-bodied passenger to go through the door to do so. Oh, that makes sense. I take it back. That <laughs> makes sense. I take it back. That is how that works. And they didn't do that. We'll get into all that. That's all coming. Okay. So one <laughs> of those very clickbait-y listicles that I've read is like all of the things that flight attendants do that you aren't aware of. They're not just there to serve you drinks. No. When they are greeting you as you step onto the plane, they are doing three things at once. Mm -hmm. They're counting passengers. Yep. Mm -hmm. They're looking for signs of human trafficking. Yep, that is a thing. And they are looking for their able-bodied passengers. Yep. Yep. They're actually doing a fourth thing, too, and making sure that you're coherent, because if you have been drinking too much, they will, not, they will not serve you alcohol. I feel like that's part of the whole able-bodied thing, because kind that's, of, that's yeah. the opposite of able-bodied. It's like, In oh, way, look yes. at you. Yes. You're drunk as f Yeah, not going to give you any more alcohol. So yeah, all those things are happening. There's a lot of things that broke down here. We're about to get into all the things that broke down. Apart from the actual explosion itself, this evacuation, rescue effort, and everything that happened afterward was purely awful. Terrible. It's a miracle that more people didn't die. That's kind of what I have to say about it. They found that the thick smoke in the main cabin prevented the aircrew from completing their checks before leaving the aircraft, you know, going through the cabin and making sure that nobody's left lying on the floor in any of the rows of seats or anything. The captain was the last one to disembark. He and was. He could, he could not get to the back. I don't blame him. I don't either. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely not. There were flames through the whole cabin. So that wasn't a possibility. And I understand. They and, didn't blame anybody for that. And not that he knew this, but there is the potential for flashover. Yep. Which is a... Any firefighter knows is a huge risk in a contained vessel. Well, and actually the firefighters were aware of this and they were afraid that that was going to happen. That happened on Air Canada Flight 797. I was just going to say that. Yes. The toilet fire episode. Yep. yep. It also happened a lot in Chicago Fire if you ever watched that show. Yeah. So that's a whole thing that they were consciously aware of. And it's a big part of why rescuers didn't just rush into the cabin to go searching to help because they were afraid that at any given moment it could do that, even though... All of the exits were open by this point, and it was unlikely. It's still a risk. Yes. They found that the main cabin paging system failed after the explosion, and flight attendants were unable to reach the portable loudspeaker. This prevented the evacuation message from reaching the rear section of the main cabin. They evacuated anyways, but this was noted as a problem that they couldn't even use a manual paging system, i.e. a megaphone. Yeah. That was a thing. They found that the flight attendant responsible for the L1, R1, and L4 emergency exits failed to enlist passengers who had left the aircraft earlier to provide assistance to those following on the slides. As a result, several passengers were injured sliding down the sideway. They call it sideways. Slide. So they didn't do what they were Are supposed to Are we just calling slides sideways now? That's what they call it <laughs> in the report. I'm gonna go right on the sideways. They found that... Two disabled passengers were the last to leave the aircraft as there was no one to assist them. Bruh. The emergency evacuation took four minutes. Oh, which way too long. Four minutes is way too long. 90 seconds. That 90. is... It's supposed to be 90. 90 seconds. Or less. That is the industry standard. Four minutes is a very long one, and when you didn't stop to help those you know needed help. That's the whole thing with the cabin crew. By knowing who is not able-bodied, those are the first people they're supposed to go and help, by the way. 
Well, of course. Because otherwise they will. Because they they can't get off. Right. So that's a whole thing, too. That's a whole disastrous thing that happened here that was just bad. They found that the aircrew failed to determine whether there were more passengers left on board, failed to guide all passengers to a point 200 feet upwind, and then failed to count them. So you this- are supposed to guide passengers, anyone who got off the plane, to somewhere upwind of a fire, you know, yep. so they don't catch fire. And they don't also inhale smoke. There's a few things that come with this. So the air crew weren't trained for this, which we'll get to, but they weren't trained for these things well enough by the company. You are supposed to take them 200 feet upwind, assuming you can collect all the passengers, because even today, this is still a problem in emergency evacuations on a runway where they just have a hard time corralling people to one place. You know, panicking people is like herding cats. It is. And then you're also standing there, like, licking your finger, sticking it up, like, where's the wind? Right. And more so, they didn't count the people, which... Oh, yes. There's a whole nother problem that happened there. So, listen, they messed up real bad. Really bad, because the rescuers that were on site, specifically the Air Force wing, had collected a set of 28 people, brought them to their facility... And didn't tell anyone. Didn't tell anybody, didn't count them, and let them go. So So for quite some time... We were missing 28 people. They were like, there are 28 people probably dead in that airplane somewhere. Yeah. Because they literally had no idea where these 28 people were. And then eventually somebody from the Air Force, I think, spoke up and was like, oh, wait, we had people, but we let them go. And they were like, how many? They were like, I don't know. Eventually, they accounted for everybody by other means, family members calling them, whatever means possible, basically. And they found all these people. That was when they finally determined. That's why I said it took quite some time for them to actually figure out that everybody was off the airplane. No one was left on the plane. Nobody was left on the airplane. So that was bad. Like, really bad? Here's a thing that I am now very acutely aware of because of my job. And this is a pretty enormous breakdown. They found that the airline failed to join with the airport to provide aid as stipulated by the Uni Air Commercial Aircraft Emergency Program at Hualien Airport. Every airline flying into every airport in the world has to have an emergency response plan for that airport in case something happens. Right. Didn't you just have to, like, edit yours? I did. And that response plan tells you who's responsible for what tasks, who takes over, when, how to go about the emergency response, all the different facilities you can use, the different resources there are in the area for all the different things. It is this whole very large document that outlines exactly how an emergency should be handled. And that does very much involve the airline working with the airport. That is 90% of that emergency response plan, if not more. They didn't do any of that. How long is that document? I edited part four, which was 36 pages. There's like seven parts, eight parts. Good God. But I mean, expensive. it has to be pretty extensive, though. I mean, yeah. Most of it is standard for the entire airline in every okay. station. The part that I edit is the only part that changes. But this emergency response plan tells you exactly what the chain of command is, how to do a response to an emergency, who to contact, who's in charge at different points, how to put people in charge of different places for different parts, for all the different resources they're going to need. Passenger collection centers, family reunification centers, media centers, things like that. You know, sometimes I forget how important your job is. All of this stuff is incredibly important. And this existed for them in that station, and they didn't do any of it. None. They did none. That's nice. They didn't work with the airport. They didn't have a chain of command. They didn't determine who was in charge of this scene. 
What? To me, that is... Woo! You could lose your job over that. They found that firefighters were unfamiliar with the airframe and were unaware of areas critical in fires. Their focus on the exterior of the aircraft during the critical initial moments allowed the fire inside the cabin to expand. So even by the time they got there, of course, the whole thing was up in flames. Everybody was already off the airplane by this point, but they didn't know that. And they were going to try to protect these people so they weren't using high pressure hoses in the right areas. They were actually using low pressure hoses on the whole thing. So does your average airport firefighting operation know the ins and outs of each aircraft type? To some extent, yes. If an airplane operates into an airport, they have to have some knowledge on how that airplane is configured. Interesting. The critical point. So what that really means is there are critical things on every single aircraft. They're highlighted and they just have to know that. They hear the aircraft type, then they know where those critical things are. That's it. That's all they really need to know. They don't need to know all of the specifics about the airplane, just the critical things, which are probably engines, fuel tanks, hydraulic fluids, electrical lines. In the event that they are unaware of the aircraft type, are they trained to recognize the aircraft type? I don't think so, but that's, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know that one. But to be honest, a lot of them probably know it anyways. Because I'm bad at that. They probably get good at it. I'm garbage at that, actually. But a lot of this comes from, you know, airplanes are pretty standard in the way they are built these days, especially even then they were actually standard too. They, everything was pretty much in the same place. So it's not to say that you couldn't pretty much figure it out. But point is they weren't trained for that and they didn't know how to handle this. And they just kind of assumed that maybe there were people still in there and they didn't do this right. They found that stemming from their unfamiliarity, the airport's fire squad and other agencies initially only sprayed chemical agent and water using turrets at the broken skin. So the points where it was already blown through. Only after 30 minutes did they begin to use pressurized hoses inside the aircraft, where the fire actually was. That was bad. They found that it took one hour and nine minutes to extinguish the fire, leaving the upper part of the airframe fully consumed by the fire. Which is ridiculous. The airplane was wasted because of that. I mean, it was probably wasted anyways. But that was really bad. They found that upon receipt of the alert, the first airport fire vehicle rushed to the scene without first notifying the other vehicles. They just went. Worse yet, they found that the airport fire squad was short in resources, understaffed or under-equipped, and the first fire engine was manned by only two firefighters. Oh, good God, no. Well, that's not going to do anything. <laughs> I'm no expert, but I've watched enough episodes of Chicago Fire. That is not enough. <laughs> you are right. What can you even do with two people? The answer is... Nothing. Which is why it took them so long to get the stupid fire out. We've talked about this one in a previous episode. Oh, boy. And this one, oh, extra super mega bad. Worse than gasoline on board? They found that the auxiliary firefighting agencies were uninformed of water refill sites, dangerous sectors. No! Dangerous sectors, destruction sectors inside the aircraft, and the layout of the inside of the airport. No! They didn't know their own friggin' airport! They didn't know where to get water. They didn't know where to do anything. They didn't know how to do firefighting! What's the point? There wasn't one. Hence, it took them an hour and nine minutes to put it out. They used whatever they could find and basically threw it on the airplane. Did they go old school and just have buckets of water? I don't know, but people on the airplane had initially used fire extinguishers, and at some point in time, they think maybe a firefighter got on there and used one, too. They did see evidence of used fire extinguishers. Yes. I do remember seeing that. But they shouldn't have to. No. (laughs) No, they shouldn't. They found that the outdated bell used by the tower to notify the firefighting agencies failed to give them proper alarm. No, really. ding a ling a ling a ling a ling ding 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 Instead of like, fire. Isn't there a big red button in the tower that they can just press in case of emergency? Pretty much, yeah. There's usually something along that line. Don't press the big red button. Yeah, or a red phone, they call. 
Oh, that's true. Unless it's absolutely necessary. Yep. Last two. They found that the Air Force 401st Air Wing failed to check and sort 28 injured passengers before sending them to the hospital. Away they went. Those 28 people, just like we discussed. They found that the airport paramedics are understaffed, having only one assigned to nurse. Nice. Just one. So that 30 minutes waiting for ambulances? Yeah, that was a big deal. That was a really big deal. One nurse. One nurse. For how many passengers? <laughs> a lot. Not the Let only me tell you how good script. that's going to do you. Yep. It's not. That's right. That's triage to the extreme. Yep. Okay, so okay. probable cause to the accident. That is what it's written. A flammable liquid. Gasoline. gasoline. Inside bleach and softener bottles and sealed with silicone was carried on board the aircraft. A combustible vapor formed as the leaking gasoline filled the stowage bin and the impact of the landing aircraft created a short in a battery. The short ignited the gasoline vapor and created the explosion. This is, I don't like that probable cause. Yes, that is what happened in a very, very, very simplified sense. But... Probable causes, as we've read them before, again, it's not that they place blame, but they determine why. I think given the... Tumultuous circumstances? Tumultuous circumstances, media coverage, and the newness, that's not the word I'm looking for, but the newness of the investigative body, I get it. I'll give everybody this as well, including the firefighters. The MD-90 was pretty much brand new at the time. As a matter of fact, this aircraft, I believe they said, was only six months old to the company. Well, and I I guess I'm not done because they're still contributing factors to the accident. Yes, 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 there are. The Civil Aeronautics Administration organic regulations and its operational bylaws fail to designate any entity as responsible for hazardous materials. So no one was technically at fault. Because nobody was checking the hazardous materials, but nobody was assigned to do it. The aviation police failed to properly recruit and train personnel to include preparing training material and evaluating training performance. Some new recruits were found to have not received any formal security check training. They were just put there as a body. But instead were following instructions from senior inspectors. Consequently, new inspectors cannot be relied upon to identify hazardous materials. No, really. Turns out senior members couldn't either. The detectors and inspectors failed to detect the hazardous materials. The detectors used by the aviation police did not detect the banned motorcycle batteries, nor did security inspectors detect the liquid bleach, a banned corrosive substance. So bleach itself! (laughs) Neither one of them should have gotten. The inspector read the bottle of bleach and sent him with it. And bleach wasn't allowed. It wasn't allowed. Well, and it wouldn't be if you think about what bleach is. Yep. Why the hell would you want to take that on airplane? Exactly! Why do you need it? If you can just think, like if it's in the overhead bin, right? Mm -hmm. And it comes open and it gets in someone's eyes or something. They're blind. They were going to a place that they could drive to probably within two hours. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. That's like (laughs) us going to Colorado Springs. Yeah. And And flying with bleach. (laughs) Taking bleach. Why? Or AKA gasoline. Not like there's not grocery stores. Or a motorcycle battery. <laughs> what the heck? I just none of this just made any sense. Anyway, recommendations. Let's please, do some recommendations. Please have many. There were some. They focus on the things you wouldn't think they would, but what? Kind of. They do. They do a little bit. I'm like, uh, can I list them out? No, they do. They do the important things. Don't get me wrong. They do the important things. But they don't really focus on the battery or the, the bleach. <laughs> so can I list them? out? They recommend to upgrade emergency notification. The military and civil agencies that shared airports should conduct scene commanding and yes. coordination drills. Yes, duh. That is 
absolutely required at every commercial serving airport on Earth. They recommend to upgrade the firefighting agency stationed in airports shared by the military and civil agencies having identifying types and structure, such as fuel tank section, of the aircraft operating in the airfield, so that immediate solutions could be provided in case of an accident. Most aircraft spray the wings. It actually didn't burn the fuel in this case, though. Miraculously. Miraculously. Otherwise, there would have been much bigger booms. Yeah. They recommended that inspections at airports to ensure that firefighting facilities are fully equipped, personnel are properly trained, and emergency and rescue operations and regulations are followed. In other words, they didn't do any of that. Everything they're supposed to do anyways, and they didn't, but they should. And they have to, really. Two, UniAir. They recommended implementation of a standard evacuation procedure and training of flight attendants thereon. The procedure shall specify the positions of flight attendants for assisting evacuating passengers, directing passengers at the end of the slides, conducting a check before leaving the aircraft, the assembly, evacuation, and check of unhurt passengers, which will be reported to the scene commander, of which there wasn't one. I feel like that's just normal procedure. Yes, this is normal procedure for any airline, even at the time, and they just didn't do that. They didn't do any of that. Now, for anybody wondering, UniAir is gone. It has been for a long time. What happened to it? Uh, they were a very small airline. They were a very small Let airline. Let me see what had happened. This is why they were bad at training, because they were small. It got numbed. By who? Eva? Great China Airlines. Oh, they're probably In 1998, there. which is before this. This was probably... It doesn't... Well, yeah, but they could still keep the brand. Okay. Then when did Great China Airlines go under? Because they don't exist either. And Taiwan Airways. That doesn't exist either. With an operation focused on domestic routes, UniAir is a subsidiary of Evergreen Group, making it a sister airline of the mainline operator Ava Air. Yep. It was known as Mekong Airlines until 1996, when Ava Air took a majority share of the airline. In 1998, the airline merged with Great... China Airlines and Taiwan Airways, which Eva Air also had interest in, to form Uni Airways. Great. The airline had the largest market share in the domestic Taiwan market in recent years and has expanded to include international flights. A few of its former McDonnell Douglas MD-90 and current ATR-72 aircraft were repainted and flew for parent carrier Eva Air due to overcapacity. In recent years, UniAir has launched services to international destinations from the southern Taiwanese port city of I can't pronounce that. In 2007, the airline received permission to begin flights to Japan. They are still in service. That's interesting. They are still in service. But that means they're Eva Air, though. They're basically wholly owned by Eva Air. That makes a lot more sense. That's why I don't know of them, because they're Eva Air's thing. So they still exist. Just yeah, to they be still clear, exist. But um, they're a very different airline than they were back then, because this was very new at the time. They weren't doing any training or anything, which was a big problem. So current common destinations, China. Yeah. Seoul. Hmm. They used to fly to Manila, apparently. They no hmm. longer do so. They are Taiwan. Small. Everywhere in Taiwan. Yes, of course. They're a small carrier. And Ho Chi Minh City. Interesting. Is it still called that? Yes. Okay. Hmm. They have co-chair agreements with Air China, Eva Air, Hainan Airlines, Shandong Airlines, and Shenzhen Airlines. Their current fleet consists of two A321-200s and 14 ATR-72-600s. This is the weird thing about Eva Air and their subsidiaries. They're operating in Taiwan, and they are definitely one of the more interesting carriers out of that part of the world. But they are... China is a really weird place. I'm not going to get too deep into this, but China has way too many airlines, and they're all owned by the state. And Taiwan tries to be separate from that. So China Airlines, which is based in Taiwan, actually, is trying to change its name because they have no interest in being part of China. So, but Eva Air hasn't really done anything much about the whole separation thing because they're not named China Airlines. So it's interesting that they code share with any of the Chinese airlines, but that's kind of because they have to. 
I didn't know that Eva Air was based in Taiwan. Them mm-hmm. and China Airlines. Yeah. Okay. My grandfather flew on Eva Air recently. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, yes, we are aware that there was a crash in Cebu. We are well aware. That is where my grandfather's right now. No, I have not called him to ask. Uh, he wasn't on a Korean air flight. We no, know. but I wondered if he knew anything. Probably not. I, he doesn't answer his phone, and the time difference is insane. Yep. But yes, in case you were unaware, an A330 did overrun a one runway in Cebu on its way from Seoul, I believe. Mm-hmm. No one was injured. Which is unbelievable. Anyway, back to the current. Yep. I only have a handful more recommendations I'm going through, not very many. They recommend improved training for company emergency teams with the aim to increase coordination with the backup operations provided by the airport. In other words, emergency response training. Just making sure they know who's in command of a scene and how to actually handle emergency response. They recommend the installation of an emergency start system for easily accessible loudspeakers to improve the communications between the front and the rear section of the aircraft. Especially when those cables might be severed from, I don't know. Fire. Yep. Two, the Civil Aeronautics Administration, Ministry of Transportation and Communications. They recommend review of firefighting and paramedic resource allocation to ensure that they can handle any emergency or an emergency. (laughs) That would be a good start to me. I am skipping many more of these because they are all about the things we talked about, how just period they were really bad at emergency response. The firefighting and rescue operation was so bad. They recommended fixing all of that. And I'm sure this airport has because they realized just how bad that was. And I'm sure they were put on the spotlight. To the Aviation Police Bureau of the National Police Administration, Ministry of Interior Affairs. They recommended clearly defining management authority of hazardous materials with the Civil Aeronautic Administration under the Ministry of Transportation and Communications. What is a hazardous material? How do we handle it? And how do we stop it from being on airplanes? I don't know. Numerous other industries seem to have this figured out. Yep. They recommend upgrading security inspection equipment in airports to capably detect hazardous liquid contained in bottles and cans. Done. They recommend establishing recruitment plan and conduct training and regular on-the-job training for security inspectors. Associate training materials with systems for evaluation of performance of the training. Train them, inject them, test them. They recommend conducting a full-scale evaluation of security inspection capabilities of all airports. And that is it. And that is that. That was UniAir. I don't remember the flight number. 873. There you go. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. And the new brand of stupidity. It's a weird one. So, moral of the story, don't bring batteries on flights. It won't make it anyway. Don't bring gasoline on flights. Also won't make it anyway. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Problem solved. Thank you you so much for listening. We hope you are having a good month. This is... This comes out at the beginning of November, so... Oh, good God. Happy November. Happy November. As always, check out the Patreon stuff. There's so much stuff included on Patreon. So much. There's We're so about much. to record a post-episode that Marina seems like she'll be mostly dead for. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so tired. Because you got up so early. It's not then you earlier than normal, but... I don't know. Anyway. And then make sure you check out, like, the merch stuff. Yes. The newsletter, which, by the way, thing on the newsletter, it won't go away. The ridiculous amount of messages and emails (laughs) that was like, please don't, please don't. I was like, okay, all right. Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry I said anything. And then a bunch of people answered the trivia questions. Yeah, I saw that. So thank you. What is the success rate on the trivia questions? Uh, It was about like the people that have been listening to us for the longest 
probably got all of them right. I think the one that a lot of people got wrong was the plane that was included in our intro. Ah. And it's a 757. Yes, it is. If you didn't know that, it's a 757. There you go. Now go answer the questions. <laughs> we had a recorder that we were shielding with jackets. Because it was very windy that night. It was night. super so windy. windy. And we were trying to get the plane noise without... The wind. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was a Delta. No, it was United. It was United? It was United 757-300. What the heck? Where was it coming from? I don't remember. I okay. see. I don't it was probably <laughs> Chicago, D.C., or Houston, or San Fran. That's usually where they come from. Anyway. So there you go. There will be new a new set of trivia questions on the next one because so many people answered the previous trivia questions. So. Mm-hmm. Thank Ooh, can you. We get, can we get the in? Yeah. We can do that in the post-episode. That cool. way, everyone, if you want to actually know the answers, be a patron. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Remember to give us a like, a follow, a rating. It really does help the podcast because more people are able to see us because of our rating is so high and people we, recommend us and all that stuff. We did yeah. get a recent spike of listenership and that is all thanks to you guys. We did. I, we very much appreciate it. Keep it also, up. ducks are still available. Those are still a thing. Yes. Please order ducks. You can order ducks. We ordered more, so now we have plenty of ducks. And Paige is on top of it. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to post episode now, and we hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.